0: You're listening to the Whole Church Podcast. Our efforts to educate and unite the church are made possible thanks to our sponsors on Patreon. Please consider joining them for $3 a month at patreon.com forward slash the Whole Church Podcast, where you'll get access to our special bonus content like our Whole Church News segment, where we cover news from around the world in the church today.
1: Ephesians 4 18 and 25 in the Christian Standard Bible, reads, They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to be put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness, in righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Pastor Will, in this text, St. Paul seems to contrast ignorance of God and sin with unity and truth. What is the connection here between knowledge, unity, and a sinful
2: lifestyle? Hmm. Yeah, I think it 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 boils down to um your actions backing up with what you believe. And if we take Paul as writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, you know, he's writing a pastoral letter to try and guide a community or um you know, at, at some parts of this letter he's trying to encourage them about that they are saved by grace and not through works, but then he's also encouraging them to live lives that are bear witness to Christ, and if this is what you believe, who Christ is, then then you do die to your old self. Your old self um, is is put away, and you have a new self, a, a new identity in in Christ. And other places, he talks about this kind of baptismal imagery of of uh, dying with Christ and rising again to new life. And and in baptism, that's what we do: we drown the old self to rise to new life. And I think that's what he's he's getting at. And and yeah, we're all growing, we all have our, our vices and our bad habits and, and things, um, but it is, it, I think he's encouraging them to have their, their lives and their actions match up with what they actually believe who Christ is.
0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Whole Church Podcast, possibly your favorite Unity Podcast. I'm here. I'm Joshua Knoll. I'm a uh, co-host, kind of an intern here. I've been given pretty humble duties, but uh, I I do get the great honor of introducing to you the one who runs it all, the great, the king of podcasting, the one and only TJ Tiberius Juan Blackwell. Welcome back.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here, as always, with the world's second best co-host, Joshua <laughs>
0: Yeah, and today we're back doing a Dividing Scripture series. Uh, you might be able to tell from the different intro that happens when we do Dividing Scripture series. I am excited for this one. We're going to be talking about Redactor Criticism and the character Elihu. Elihu? Elihu? I don't know. We're going to keep pronouncing it differently throughout the episode. But uh, it's going to be an interesting one. Redactor Criticism has a lot to do with how texts are edited, if they are edited. So, uh, pretty controversial, be a fun time.
1: Yep. And, uh, Hey, rate the show. Spotify has made it super easy to rate the show. It helps us a lot, positive or negative. Uh, but if you're going to leave a negative rating, you got to tell us why. Email us or follow our Facebook group. Uh, super easy to join the whole church on Facebook. And remember, remember, uh, we are starting our campaign to earn a hundred dollars by the end of the year to start a new website. Uh, we are planning our first conference the Every Tribe, Denomination, and Tongue Conference. Tickets will be available soon and will include some food, Q&As with church leaders, like one of the world's leading Old Testament scholars, Trimper Longman III, also a friend of the show, and free stuff. Everybody loves free stuff. So get your ticket when it's available and come join us.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that being said, I do have a favorite form of unity that it is always my honor to do with uh, the great Tiberius one. Today is is pretty simple. Um, I'll answer first just to add some clarity to the question. It might help a little bit. Today's question is just simply, what is your favorite fictional landmark? Could be anything from any series, just a landmark that you really enjoy in fiction. There are so many for me and I, I hate to be that guy, but Disney's animated Hercules. I bring it up a lot, but I really like how they animate Mount Olympus, the way they do the clouds and everything. Fantastic. It's just so cool-looking and when you get to play it in Kingdom Hearts 3 you get to be there it's awesome it's great stuff All right, yeah. TJ favorite fictional landmark
1: the Eiffel Tower
0: TJ I don't I don't think you understand it, it doesn't exist
1: land- <laughs> <laughs> you prove it exists
0: well and that it's was a propaganda. The question <laughs> I thought you were just gonna make an argument of it's fictional one it's in Ratatouille or something but you're just straight up the Eiffel Tower exist. is fictional okay do you have one from a movie or a show that's like a landmark you really... Enjoy. Yeah, they
1: go in and like they CGI it into every movie
0: that's in Paris. Oh, okay. So so yeah. you're still sticking with, with the Eiffel Tower. All right. Yeah. You like Eiffel Tower more than Mount Doom or the Dunes of Tatooine.
1: Yeah. But speaking of Dune, uh, Castle Caladan from Dune actually would be very, very cool to visit. True. It'd probably just be True. hot. But welcome back to our Dividing Scripture series. Uh, we said before that we're going to be covering Job a little differently than we did Genesis. By going through topics of the book rather than going through the scriptures in order, today we're going to look at the character of Elihu in the book of Job and the controversies around redactor criticism of the Bible. If you want to catch up on the whole Dividing Scriptures series, there's a link in the show notes. As always, our purpose in doing this is not to settle any debates or to give our own opinions. Our goal is to show the differences of the church and ask how we might be united despite these differences. Joshua, who is Elihu? What is productive criticism and why should anyone care?
0: I'm glad we're not on Patreon. So I don't have to do this in 10 seconds or less, but uh, as simply as possible, Elihu, maybe he was a character after Job has all the terrible stuff happened to him. And he's like, God, why would you do this to me? And he has three friends come and say, well, God's doing this to you Cause you suck. And he's like, no, but I don't suck. I've never done anything wrong ever. Elihu comes up afterwards and is straight up like, okay, Uh, The friends are bad because they weren't hard enough on you. And you're bad because everyone's bad. God's good. You suck, Job. That's what Elihu does in the book, basically. But because, as we're going to talk about later, when God calls out Job's friends for being wrong, he calls out the three, but does not call out Elihu, which is kind of questionable. Why doesn't God mention him? Uh, So that's what that is. Redactor criticism is just... uh, Criticism does not necessarily mean we're critical of or we're like... Uh, we're not sure about this whole Bible thing. Uh, it, it's a form of literary criticism, so it's not just something Bible-specific. Anything literature you use it for, and it's just being able to look for evidence that something was ev- edited, whether that's in the text, outside of the text, archaeology, whatever. We're looking for evidence that something was edited. reason people care, there's a lot of, you know, the Bible's always been the same. There's no way it's been edited. It's the complete truth of God, and what we have now is exactly the same as the original. And there's a lot of people who completely change meanings because they're like, oh, well, no, most of this wasn't in here. Or, you know, Thomas Jefferson who's like, I only care about the red letters. It's important stuff to to not do that. Yeah. So that being said, I'm going to give some examples of redactor criticism a little bit easier for people to understand. So this is what we're talking about in the book of Mark, chapter 16, nine through 20. We've discovered that in the older manuscripts that is simply not there at all. So what we find in the older manuscripts is there's a shorter ending that's basically like Jesus said, y'all be cool, all right, and went away. So what you'll find in your Bibles, usually, you might find that shorter ending. You'll probably find, especially if you're Protestant, you're going to find in parentheses 9 through 20, or it'll be italicized. There'll be a little footnote that says this wasn't in the older manuscript, but it's still there. There's just going to be a note that says this wasn't originally there. There's a lot of reasons for that. In the Catholic Church, the Catholics just went ahead and said, yeah, this is canon, 2. They just settled it and said, you know what? doesn't matter if it was edited in. It's canon, two. So cool. Um, Deuteronomy 34 is another example. Whether you or not you believe Moses wrote the Torah, there is this point where some of the text changes. And you see really specifically, here's how Moses died. Past tense. Here's how old he was. Past tense. Here's where he was buried. Past tense. So something happened here where something was edited in, whether if it was Moses writing, then obviously someone put in here what happened to him. If it wasn't Moses writing, the tense changed. So there's still some evidence that it might've been someone else who put this one in. Revelation set, Revelation, the entire book. You read the beginning, it says this is a letter to all of the different churches. People doesn't... No one would send a letter addressed to seven different churches and send it to all of them. What he did is address a letter to each individual church, and later someone compiled them into one book, which is why we see the intro to each church at the beginning of the book. And you see that the redactor did some stuff to make that make a little bit more sense. That's also why you see all these different sets of seals or trumpets and whatever. Some people believe that some of these were in some copies and not in other letters, and the redactor combined them. Um, The book of Isaiah spans 300 years. Isaiah was probably not alive for 300 years. So probably. Young, Yeah. So there's some evidence that some different stuff is sliced in. A lot of people will say there's three sets of oracles. Chapters 1 through 39 is one set. 40 through 55 is one set. 56 through 66 is one set. Some redactor criticism will look at how things were worded and say 27 through 29 seems to be different than the rest of 1 through 39. So there's multiple Isaiahs were contributing to that book or multiple people contributed to the book of Isaiah. That's sort of what we're talking about.
1: Yeah. So there are a few reasons redactor criticism is still pretty controversial. Uh, One of these is because biblical criticism as a whole and how people have conflated these practices. Uh, Biblical criticism started as a branch of literary criticism aimed at the Bible. Literary criticism has its roots before the canon of scripture in the fourth century before the common era. That's BC uh, with Aristotle. Uh, He used his logical structure to determine certain things about different texts that helped him and others study literature better
0: yeah yeah um usually when you talk about literary criticism you're talking about literary genres we're trying to see is this a poem is this a play is this whatever and figuring out the genre helps us understand what the author was trying to say whether you're talking about bible or not that is just a useful thing to do but then you have some of these things where it, it's very similar to how we do forensics if you watch any of these true crime shows or forensic files or anything like that where they're looking at how something was written the style it was written in the handwriting whatever and they're using that to determine, okay, this seems to be by this author, but this seems to be by this author. So it's sort of a science. A lot of it goes above my head, and that's why a lot of people don't trust it so much. But it is its own branch of criticism is a branch of literary criticism, separate from biblical criticism, sort of related to it, but they are two different things. Redactive criticism is just kind of using that science of how can we tell what was written by who, and when does looking at who wrote it suggests that there was multiple authors and someone edited it together.
1: Right. Biblical criticism is the study and comparison of biblical records to historical records. Uh, it was started during the German enlightenment, which was 1650 to 1800. And the Bible isn't always consistent in this era. As you can compare Kings and Chronicles, for example, uh, the big controversial topic extended from this already controversial study and is called, Documentary hypothesis, uh, which is the idea that the Torah was written by multiple different authors. Uh, We've discussed this before in episode 61, Inspiration, The Flood, and End Times Talk, which was a good episode. Check it out. Documentary hypothesis was started in 1780 by Johann Eichhorn, who believed the Torah was written by two authors that he called J and E. Building on this theory, Wilhelm DeWitt believed there was a third source, the D source, and later, on the e source would be believed to be made of two groups and was split into the p and e sources so it is now j e p d which yeah. was kind of rude of him to do because before it could have just been jed but <laughs> that's jept. true uh, because biblical criticism and documentary hypothesis are so controversial redactor criticism often gets lumped in with these studies another reason redactor criticism is controversial is because the bible says nothing should be added or taken away from scripture or does it in Deuteronomy 4, 1 and 2, reads, Now, Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinances that I am teaching you to follow, so that you may live, enter, and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. You must not add anything to what I command you or take anything away from it, so that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God I am giving you.
0: Yeah, and that's why Deuteronomy is the last book of the Bible, right? Yep. So
1: in the in <laughs> Revelation, which is 50 books later, uh, it's a lot. Uh, Revelation twenty two eighteen through 19 says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add him to the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are written about in this book.
0: Yeah. So... These are pretty interesting scriptures. So obviously, we continue to have more scripture after Deuteronomy. But that's why Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Torah is treated as separate. And in the Psalms, when it sings about the law, it's singing about the Torah. This is the original scripture, ends with Deuteronomy. But we do add to it still. Mm -hmm. And it's not that we are adding. uh, I think the difference is that we're not adding to the Torah. We're not adding to the law. We are saying there's other things that God had to say. God didn't say five books. All right, that's it. I have nothing else to tell you guys. Right. In fact, that's just not how God works. God still communicates to his people today. (laughs) Believe it or not. Right. Also, if Revelation was the last book, we'd also have problems. Because uh, if you're talking about when it was written, it was written a lot earlier than some of the other New Testament books. So we'd have to discount some of those. That also doesn't work. Also, the passage in Revelation kind of specifically says, the words of the book of this prophecy. Yeah. It's kind of specific. So even if you're doing some of the literal interpretations of the Bible, we've talked about different interpretations before, I still don't think you can take these scriptures to say that God had nothing else to tell us.
1: Yeah. And Revelation is really only at the end because that that's where it makes the most sense to be.
0: Yeah. It's a big okay.
1: climax. Here's how the world's going to end. Why would that be like <laughs> the fourth book in the New Testament?
0: God, that'd be pretty funny though, wouldn't it? Yeah, uh, we still got some stuff to tell you, but it's so, going to be bad.
1: <laughs> on to the book of Job. Joshua, why is Elihu significant?
0: Because of redacted criticism. Next question. <laughs> no, um Elihu is added. He says a lot of things. It is structured differently than the other arguments from Job's friends. And when God speaks to Job and says, these friends were wrong, but you've spoken correct of me, Job. Job, you were right. He doesn't mention Elihu at all, which is weird. Why would God say at the end, all right, I'm going to wrap this book up. I'm going to address everything everyone said, but not that guy. What he said was fine. I'll leave that alone. That's just weird. If he's going to take the time to explain why Job was right and why his friends were wrong, why wouldn't he mention Elihu? He was also right. He was a writer. He was super right. He was righteous. That's what some people think. And there, there's a ton of arguments of was he right? Was he wrong? Was he edited in later? Was, as Augustine says, he was neither right nor wrong.
1: Who knows? He was just talking.
0: Yeah. He, 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 was, just, said he stuff. was just saying stuff. He was just there, you know? Yeah. So Job has three friends that appear in this book. He might have more friends than three. I don't know, man. But he has three that appears originally. He's torn himself, his rags, and put ashes on his head, whatever else, you know, doing his whole sad Bible thing. And each friend has their argument split up into three, sort of. If you're going to get into Bildad and Zafar, there is some stuff that's like questionable on whether or not they have three parts, but there's a certain structure that it seems to be following for all three of these friends that Elihu does not follow in his argument. Alphazad's first friend says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here is a chart of sin to punishment ratio. You do this much sin, you get this much punishment. You got this much punishment, so you must have done this much sin, dude. And uh, Job's like, no, I haven't done anything. Your argument is false. And a lot of us have heard this in the church, right, of you must have sinned, bad things happened to you. We still say stuff like this. God says that was wrong. Bildad, maybe you were a bad dad and your kids sinned. Maybe it wasn't you. Maybe someone related to you saying God's punishing you, you know, collateral damage. And he's trying to kind of excuse Job, but still say sin was involved. And that's why you're being punished. And we do see parts of the Bible that say stuff like this. The thing with these three friends are none of them are saying anything that's biblically wrong. You find evidence in the Bible for all of these arguments. Zafar, the third friend. Because God is so holy, maybe you just don't realize how much of a sinner you are, because you're good, but compared to God, you kind of suck, dude. Again, these are all things that are true, that we hear people in the church still argue. Elihu comes afterwards, after these arguments, makes a very similar argument, and say, you know, it's transactional, you must have sinned, that's why God's punishing you. And then he criticizes the other friend that says, you guys were too easy on him, you need to be harder on Job. Job, you absolutely sinned, you're terrible. And he was just the hardest, most passionate, he was a young kid too, And he just, guns a blazing, jumps in there.
1: Yeah. Uh, In Job 42, 7 through 10, God addresses almost everyone in the book. It reads, It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is trustworthy, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so as to not do with you as your foolishness deserves, uh, because you have not spoken of me what is trustworthy, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shutite, and Zephar the uh, Namathite went and did as the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job.
0: Some strong Bible Bible names right there. Yeah, good job. Good job. Uh, Name. What right? about what about Elihu? God just doesn't mention it. What about him? So we have a few different arguments throughout time. Saint Augustine thought Elihu must have neither been right or wrong. I mentioned that earlier. He's like, you know, God didn't address him because he wasn't right, but he also wasn't wrong. He just kind of, you know, said what he said. Uh, Elihu's argument <laughs> really. <laughs> Really boiled down to, Job was trying to justify himself instead of being concerned with justifying God. God God's like, yeah, it's neither right or wrong. It just just is what it is. Um, Saint Thomas (laughs) Aquinas, (laughs) TJ's favorite saint of Middle Earth, Middle middle (laughs) Ages. (laughs) He points out that God's first rebuking speech was. Right after Elihu's speeches. So maybe he already rebuked Elihu, just not directly, <laughs> you know? Uh, <laughs> Martin Luther believed Job was right when, about when he repented and when he claimed he was innocent to his three friends. But Elihu was right that God was punishing sin still for all have sinned. So basically, Martin Luther was trying to argue that Job was right because he repented. And he was right that he was innocent before all of this. But he wasn't innocent during all of this. That's why he was getting punished kind of a convoluted argument. John Calvin, he would say that Job was right in repenting, but Elihu had the best theological argument in the book. And God was like, well, I'm not going to touch that. That was a solid argument, dude. I don't know what John Calvin thought. More modern scholars have noted the evidence of a redactor, what we're talking about today, and have, now we have a different debate when we're talking about the scripture. So after all said and done, either Elihu was right, so God did not address him. Augustine is right, and Elihu was neither right or wrong. Or a redactor placed Elihu in the text after the Indian was already written to critique that theological argument later on. So Elihu was placed in there after God already corrected all the other friends, which is why God doesn't correct him because he wasn't in the book until after a redactor came along and said, you know, I'm going to add this because this argument's bad too and people should know it. That's sort of the theory there. Job might just be a book. When you look at it, this is something Pete Enns argues a lot. Of evolving arguments. If you look at the redactor history, it, it really looks like someone added one argument. And then someone else later on was like, well, yeah, that's wrong, but this is wrong too. So they added another part. And someone was like, well, but what about this? Have you considered this part? And then someone came up with a rebuttal to that. And over years, the book of Job developed from people creating a story and rebuttaling each other with theological arguments of the problem of pain. Why is God punishing Job? Job didn't do anything wrong, but bad stuff still happens. God is good. Why is this happening? And it's actually a book that shows us the theological debate going on in Jewish history throughout hundreds of years. Yeah, and that's what like, the redactor did. Yeah,
1: it's like seeing an argument on a bathroom stall.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's exactly like, yeah. the
1: same. Actually,
0: <laughs> I'm never gonna like every time someone mentions to job. Now I'm gonna think bathroom stall. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> You're welcome. but yeah, that's that's pretty much what we're saying. Um, and, that, and that's not what we're saying. That's what redactors are saying. So those are sort of the different takes you can take on Elihu biblical criticism in the book of Job. Question is, is this a first tier, a second tier or a third tier issue? I have two different takes. I'm going to say second to third tier is redactor criticism, whether or not you think someone came in and edited the text or, you know, whatever. I don't think it's super important who you think wrote the text or edited the text as long as you believe the text, because once it was canonized, whatever redactoring happened already happened. So, the redactions or the editing was also canonized. So, scripture is what it is, regardless of whether or not it was edited. Some that's my take. I would also say first and second tier is what we do with canon now. If you're going to say we can still edit it, pull a Thomas Jefferson and black out everything but the red letters, well, th- that's not the gospel anymore. That is something else. There's no longer Christianity because you're missing most of the Bible. So, I'm going to put that as like a first, second kind of tier. TJ, where are you putting all of the stuff with redactor criticism? First, second, third tier? What are you thinking? second just for all of it you're just
1: maybe even there. third okay know. Um, i think i'm more willing to share space with people than than a lot of people
0: are yeah the only the only time i could see it being second tier which for those who were wondering uh second tier is still call each other brother and sister but it's hard. maybe not be part of the same bible study or be part of the same denomination the only reason i could see it being second tier is for for a book like this if Elihu was editing it later to prove at uh, this point wrong to you Let's say that that's your belief, TJ. And my belief is that well, it was always there. God didn't say anything because Elihu was right. Well, all of a sudden, we have very different takes on what Elihu said, and that's going to have different implications for how we live out the Christian life. When we're talking about the Bible, we're going two different ways once we hit that path of how we talk about the Book of Job. Yeah, I still call you a Christian because it's the Book of Job, man. I mean, I love the Book of Job, but you could still believe Jesus died for your sins, and us disagree about Elihu. But if we're taking that different takes on the meaning of Scripture in general throughout Scripture, you know, Mark 16, Revelation, all of those, it might just be easier to study the Bible with people who agree with us on redactor criticism.
1: Right. So what tangible takeaway can we take from this?
0: I think that's it, man. Just understanding that people read the Bible differently, that people have put serious thought into how it's come together, but also realizing that. We still view the scripture as some type of authority, and considering one another brother and sister, and trying to understand the other side as far as how the text came together and how that changes your view of the text. And as long as we just kind of have some understanding and are willing to learn about the other perspective, I think that is a good path towards unity. So it's important to do these deep studies, especially if you disagree with redactor criticism. I think it even puts more weight on you to understand it better. So that when you talk to people who do kind of follow this path, you know how to relate to them better. What would you say? That. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Yeah. So what would be the ramifications in the world if we all did that, DJ? Unity. Mm. All right. Praise the yeah. Lord. Yeah. 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 I, I think we'd be able to have better conversations. Right now, I think a lot of times people talk past each other because you know we're both talking about the book of job but to me the book of job is a developed argument throughout hundreds of years and to you the book of job is a very clear example of you know uh, god tim- god testing someone and prove their righteousness or something yeah it was two different things man
1: yeah so now before we get into our outro kind of an abrupt stop i feel like but
0: <laughs> yeah I like there's
1: usually a better flow into this
0: i feel so too i feel the same way but we like to get into our god
1: moment segment And we just take a moment to share what God's been up to with us recently, whether it's a blessing, challenge, moment of worship, anything like that. I always make Josh go first, so I have plenty of time to think. I'm the esteemed guest. Uh, So, Josh,
0: do you have a God moment for us today? This God moment is going to build on another God moment, um, and it's probably going to seem silly. So I have still been listening to my Thanksgiving playlist, which we, we might argue more about at some point. But I was in prayer, weirdly enough, because I have, I, have I, I talk to God pretty casually a lot of the time. And I was kind of just asking God, God, why am I ready for Thanksgiving sooner? Like, why am I more ready for that? You don't know. One of my grandmothers and one of my grandfathers passed this year. They're going to be dreadful, holiday, like not dreadful holidays, but the holidays are going to be a little rough this year, rougher than usual. And I'm just thinking, why, why am I so ready for it? And it's just that I feel the need i think kind of doing some self-reflection and prayer and i realized i feel the need to be more thankful because it's been a hard year i think thankfulness is actually even more helpful than usual so yeah i'm in the thanksgiving spirit a little bit sooner than usual and realizing that it's because that's what i need right now and that god just placed it on my heart and i'm just letting myself do that so i'm counting thanksgiving as a blessing a little early this year
1: yeah me personally, I feel like Josh would have already started celebrating a couple months ago by now.
0: <laughs> I do love the holiday, but I try to wait till after Halloween usually. But not this year.
1: For me, my God moment, uh, I'm getting a raise. Praise, Praise God. Praise God. Yep. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend <laughs> uh, or an enemy. You can share it with a cousin. If you don't have cousins, you can share it with my cousins.
0: Yeah, we do prefer cousins. Josh's cousins. Listen to the show. I I do have quite a bit of cousins. Um. Also, listen to our other podcasts. TJ and I talk about some geek stuff, how it relates to the faith. Uh, you can go to systematicgeekology.org. Right now, the website's down. It's coming up soon. But you can hit the host tab. Both of our names are there. You can click on it, see everything we do when the website's up. It's kind of a cool and easy way to see what we're doing. Soon, we'll have our own website to talk about if you all uh, y'all listen to TJ. Yeah. Uh.
1: So, we are you know, part of the way through our campaign to raise $100 for a new website. And you can donate to us through patron or you can mail us an envelope with money in it or we have cash app we have cash app i have in a store Cash now. App. and the shops they Zell. can buy
0: a t-shirt they can buy a mug
1: you can buy the merchandise yeah. there are a lot of ways to support us these days uh you can show up to my apartment and just hand me money that's cool
0: <laughs> and
1: rate the show it's super easy now on spotify and we are having our conference in charlotte look for more info uh that's gonna be happening next year
0: Yeah, April 27th through 29th, I think.
1: Mm. Probably. And thank you for listening to the Whole Church Podcast. Next week, we will be back with our roundtable series. This time, we'll be talking about church buildings, how our architecture points to God and what our buildings should be being used for, and whether the church should have buildings at all. After that, we'll have back none other than Frank Viola. This time about his upcoming book, 48 Laws of Spiritual Power, Uncommon Wisdom for Greater Ministry Impact. Then finally, at the end of season one, Francis Chan will be joining us.
0: He doesn't know, though. I don't think
1: our second campaign is to get Francis Chan on the show. Yeah. Which is actually the first campaign.
0: Also, I, I might be reaching out to see if he'll come to our event. Cause that'd be pretty cool. Do that a live season finale.
1: Yeah. Thanks awesome. for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the whole church podcast. Tune back in next week, where we'll be having another roundtable discussion this time about church architecture and how the building of the church speaks to the message of the church. Remember, you can always sponsor our show for $3 a month at patreon.com
2: forward slash the whole church podcast.